0: Anansi keeps me safe when the sugar burns and the cannons fire. My mother and I live on the Queen of the Caribbees, and many white men fight each other to take the sugar we grow. But Anansi keeps me safe. I heard my mother calling from our door, silhouetted against the rain. Come here, little one. Come quickly. She pulled me inside and closed the door, bracing it with a stool. Give me your shoes, baby. Quickly. Bring me your shoes." I didn't want to give up my shoes. My mother had made them. But the panic in her eyes frightened me. I handed them to her, and she threw them out the window and into the mud. I protested, but she clamped her hand over my mouth, pulling me against her and down, so our backs were against the door. There was something outside. Something heavy and dark rasping breaths shook our house there was a tiny gap in the doorframe and if i looked close i could see my beloved shoe suddenly the shadow descended on it in the same moment it realized we were there Jumby, my mother whispered i shut my eyes and she held me tightly her brown hands squeezing my own as we listened to the shadow step closer and closer, still rustling the shoe angrily, letting out a whimper when it slipped in the mud. It was then that I saw the small spider on the floor. He crept forward on his eight legs, and before I could move, he'd gone under the door and into the rain. The shadow went quiet. The shoe hit the ground with a wet squelch. The darkness lifted. The rain became mist. I slowly opened the door, reached for my shoe. It was good as new and clean of mud, aside from an intricate spiderweb in the heel, still holding drops of rain. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Eden Brown Estate on the island of Nevis, a jewel of the Caribbean that found its fortune through sugar cultivation till the mid 19th century. The ruins of this profaned Eden are the site of a deadly duel and countless tales of suffering by the sea. Find out why to this day. It's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at Parcast Network and at parkast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. When Christopher Columbus landed on the 36-square-mile island of Nevis, the dormant volcano at the center of the island was wreathed in cloud. He called it Nuestra Senora de las Nieves, Our Lady of the Snows. When the British crown laid claim to the island in 1620, Nieves became Nevis. Like many islands in the Caribbean, Nevis is a patchwork of cultures and history, from West Indians to African slaves to their English and Irish masters. But there is something much older on these islands. Anyone who's been to the Caribbean can tell you that the weather seems to have a mind of its own there. Storms rise as if from nowhere and disappear just as quickly. There are guardians of the woods and the water, the sun and the waves. And it appears they saw what was coming in those sugar mills above the sea. The land that would become the Eden Brown Estate was purchased by James Brown in 1740 only 10 years after the end of what was called the golden age of piracy. Merchants hoped to participate in a flush and flux economy by providing sugar as fast as they could, but the cultivation of the crop required a massive initial investment of materials, labor, and time. James intended to build a modest sugar mill, but as the days stretched, so did his ambition, often at the expense of Nevis's land and its people. The destruction began as soon as Brown and his son stepped foot on this land. Animals slaughtered. Trees felled by the thousands. Pieces of them hacked away to form the top of garish structures to house their sugar cane. White men trampling over plants and insects, crushing them under their boots, killing every creature they saw. The thunder came first, a warning the cries of the landscape made loud. It frightened the son of James Brown, who shared his name. It was January. The rains weren't supposed to fall for another few months. The colonizers did not heed their West Indian guides who told them as much. Instead, James watched as his father raised his machete to the closest tree and hacked away at its leaves. For cover, he said. The normally sunny island took on a gray pallor, the bright, lush green turning to verdant shadows. The guide suggested that this may not be the place for building, but James's father had a schedule to keep and a veranda to build for this beautiful, beautiful view. Lightning cracked from the clouds, carrying down to the edge of the clearing where his father stood in his pile of massacred leaves. The smells of singed hair and burnt skin melded with the rain. His father's machete dropped to the ground, and his form crumpled along with it. James Sr. clutched his arm tightly to his side and struggled to stand as he yelled for his son to continue his work. The son picked up the machete, burning his fingers on the handle. He hesitated. But his father would not accept any form of doubt. He began to cut. The wind picked up, carrying the broken limbs of the trees toward the men. They tried to bat them away, but the wind grew stronger. Bark tore at the men's skin, rubbing their limbs raw as the branches beat them back. The pile of stones reserved for the houses were carried away by the wind, lost to the sea. Men dove into the water to retrieve them, cutting their legs on the coral reefs. The younger James was not deterred. He kept chopping at the trees, evading the flying limbs and falling palm fronds. He was more afraid of his father than any attack from Mother Nature. He did not know yet how wrong he was. The rain started to fall. The men were drenched first, Next came the structures they started to build. Most of the buildings were still unenclosed, and the water consumed their building materials. The temporary shelters they erected were flooding, too. Some of the smarter men ran for the road. Brown and his father stood alone. For a moment, they heard the tap-tap of deer running toward them. Half-starved, the Browns rejoiced at the thought of food and drew their weapons. But the guides ran from the plantation. They knew what would be visiting these men. An eerie, high-pitched call cut through the violent tattoo of the deluge. The few remaining animals scurried off toward the safety of the forest. The sun wiped the water away from his eyes and squinted in the direction of the sound. A heavy fog fell around them, the mist, coating their sweaty, bloody faces. The nature of the shape that moved toward them seemed to change with each step. There was a glimpse of horns and hooves, but also the wild hair of a man of the forest. Burning red eyes and verescent thorns, the machete dropped from the younger Brown's hand. He stood frozen, praying that some guide remained someone who could explain the presence approaching them. But there was no one save his father, whose eyes blazed with uncomprehending offense in the face of this primal creature's defiance. They were alone with a beast in a land that didn't want them. The creature stepped out of the fog, its antlers sharp and gnarled like an ancient tree. He had cloven hooves and a barrel chest, ending in an extended neck and terrifyingly human face, twisted in sinister jubilation. The Browns had no words for what they saw. In time, the islanders would call him Papa Bois. Papa Bois raised the horn of a bull to his lips and blew. The rain stopped falling. He smiled at the two men and then he stuck out his tongue. Only as the tongue grew longer did the men realize it had become a vine. Then two, then four, growing and tearing into long, strong tendrils. The sun was the first to jump backward. The vines crept toward him still, wrapping around his legs in tight circles. Papa Bois reached out with one of his strong arms and pulled. The son slid forward. The father yelled a curse and lifted his machete. The vines crawled up his body, twisting around him until he was trapped. He tried to wriggle the blade against the vines, but they were stronger than the metal. Thorns grew from the green vines, reaching for his skin. Papa Bois closed his teeth. The vines snapped and wrapped themselves around his arms, giving him the perfect leverage to pull, yanking father and son to the wet ground. Papa Bois' muddy hooves moved from the clay the men had unearthed to the soft forest floor, dragging the men behind him. The son could barely breathe. He felt every rock and stick on the uneven forest floor as he slid through the underbrush, protesting to Papa Bois' uncaring back. Insects gathered around James's face, biting and stinging the pink flesh. He wished desperately that he could swat them away. But the vines had climbed his body, covering everything from the chest downward. His father, ever the Stoic, acted as though he weren't being dragged along the forest floor. He sniffed as insects and small animals came closer to his face but he gave no indication that he found it uncomfortable or painful. The only hint that he wasn't having tea at home was the silent rage in his eyes. Papa Bois went further and further into the lush forest. Animals followed behind them. Some of them stayed in the trees, pairs of eyes blinking from the shadows. The sun's body had gone numb, His tongue felt heavy. He'd been screaming for hours, but it seemed no one heard him as they moved closer to Neva's peak. The mount wreathed in cloud. Papa Bois stopped at a clearing. Blood stained the nearby trees, a scarlet slash barely visible against the black bark. The man of the woods released the vines around the older James Brown's chest. Purple and black bloomed over the newly revealed skin, a trail of bruises. The father took a deep breath, filling his lungs to capacity. It was the only sign he gave that he had not enjoyed the experience of being dragged through the rainforest. The son waited patiently, but Papa Bois did not come near him, watching instead as James' father's skin turned red as blood flowed back into his arms. Not yours. No one had uttered the phrase, but the sun could hear it as clear as day. It echoed off the trees. The animals made noises in response, their howls and screams as clear as English to him now. Papa Bois picked up James's father, pushed him against a tree. His eyes fluttered shut for the briefest of moments, sliding down the bark until the branches themselves caught him. The points on the creature's head punctured his shoulder. James screamed as his father howled in pain, sounding like the animals that were gleefully watching him suffer. Papa Bois placed his hands against his father's chest and pushed, pulling his horns from his father's flesh with a sucking squelch. James Jr. wanted to escape, but he could barely move. Pricks of pain raced over his body as parts of it started to wake up again. He begged for his life, to be spared from the pain that his father endured. He was only following orders after all. He was not a monster, just a good son. But Papa Bois was not interested in his excuses. He leaned down, his hot breath fanning over Junior's face. James prayed that there would be some compassion left on the island. But Papa Bois grabbed the vines around James's chest and pulled. The son yelped in pain. Papa Bois nodded to himself and stepped away. He blew through the bull's horn again. A mass of creatures emerged from the trees, running toward James. From his spot in the ground, he could not make out what was coming near him. The noises of the animals blended together, and then he felt the puncture of claws and teeth. Mongoose, bats, monkeys, and rats all descended on him. Each one tried to tear a part of him for themselves. He yelped in horror as claws dug deeper into his skin. He could feel the bites bleeding and swelling, as if the sepsis was already beginning now. The canopy of trees was spinning. James felt his eyelids grow heavy. Then, there was nothing but dark. The loud pitch of a bird cut through the stillness, and James woke, sputtering bile. He looked around, expecting to see the leavings of the animals that had feasted on him the night before. But he was alone. The forest had been replaced with his small room beneath the sky in one of the new buildings. He slept not on the ground, but on a pallet that he had stuffed himself with fallen fronds a few days before. It had all been a dream, a sick adventure his head had conjured up to echo the fears of the guides. The soreness he felt was from his own poor sleep, not any sort of bloodthirsty animal. He walked down the stone steps in search of his father and coughed into his hand. His father was standing at the top of the hill watching the Atlantic. The older James turned and when the younger one saw his father's front side, he froze. There on his shoulder was an angry hole clotted with blood in the shape of a horn. James Brown Sr. eventually got his sugar mill up and running, perhaps by sheer will alone. The land resisted, and the struggles of being on the more remote side of the island, separated from Nevis' capital, Charlestown, were significant. While his father struggled tirelessly, James Jr. just struggled. He was constantly sick in the tropical climate and eventually sold the estate to his married sister, Elizabeth White. She, in turn, sold it to a Scotch-Irish colonist, Edward Huggins. The father of a tragic bride, we'll meet very soon. Papa Bois, the father of the forest, and Mama Delo, the mother of the river, figure heavily in the folklore of Grenada and Trinidad and Tobago, the last Caribbean islands before you hit Venezuela, due south of Nevis. They're the most documented examples of spirits of the Caribbean islands that evoke West African beliefs, focusing on responsibility to nature and balance. It is said that if you run into Papa Bois, you must greet him politely and avoid staring at his large hooves. We'll have more from the island and the estate that was built there after this. Now, back to the story. Edward Huggins was able to do what James Brown could not. What had been called the Brown Estate became an estate in more than name. It was now a wildly successful sugar plantation that helped establish the Hugginses as one of Nevis's most powerful families. Their rivals, the Maynards, were equally powerful and equally ambitious. But that didn't keep Edward's daughter, Julia, from falling hopelessly in love with one of the heirs to the Maynard fortune, Walter, in 1822. Never one to turn down a money-making opportunity, Edward agreed to the match and told his laborers to prepare the estate, now known as Brown's Eden, for the wedding of the century. It's 1822 and Walter Maynard and John Huggins, his future brother-in-law, are playing nice. It seems that the younger generation may finally overcome the neighborly and ideological conflicts that plagued their fathers but then one of them brings up a slave girl at the rehearsal dinner walter hurls his drink in john's face and as well-to-do young men often did in these times john challenged him to a duel it was expected that the two young men would fire in the air as was standard in such matters of honor between friends but perhaps john was still smarting from his humiliation the night before Perhaps Walter had been hiding his resentment and discomfort of the Huggins men for the benefit of his future wife. Perhaps one thought the other wasn't lifting their gun high and away fast enough. Whatever happened, both Walter and John fell to the earth, bleeding. It's said that Walter protested that he wasn't done with John, preventing both of them from receiving much-needed medical attention. Both men died. Julia Huggins was understandably distraught. She still wore her wedding dress. Her father had begged her to take it off, but she refused. Changing would mean admitting that there would be no wedding, that her fiancé was dead, and her brother was dead, and her hope with them. Her father boarded up the Eden Brown Manor House, too overwhelmed by his own grief to keep living there. The only signs of life that remained were in the sugar mill below. The funeral was quick, thrown together in a matter of hours. When the milky eyes of her betrothed looked at Julia from his hastily assembled coffin, she could have sworn that he blinked. She screamed, but her father told her it was just a trick of the mind. She was hysterical. She and her sister would stay with him where they could be cared for, as if her father had ever cared at all. Rather than accept her fate, Julia sat in her wedding dress and stared vacantly out the window toward the cool blue of the ocean and the harsh red coral that lurked just beneath the surface. Her father told her to eat, but she only managed a bitter laugh. She knew their situation wasn't as prosperous as he would like others to believe. There had been a terrible drought for years, a curse that her father had never heeded. Ships crashed in the harbor, leaving them without supplies. Crops died on the vine. The sugar grew, yes, but there were no ships to take it. The casks piled on the wharf. The names on the barrels were the only offspring Julia would ever have. She did not move. She did not eat. She did not sleep. But she did dream. As she stared out from the window, she could see a strong ship on the horizon. It didn't get stuck on the reef. Instead, it barreled through the sand and up to the green of the waiting jungle at the foot of the Eden Brown estate. Standing at the helm was her beloved Walter. His face was bloated. There were splotches of purple, green, and black marring his skin. It was as though he had been thrown overboard to die and resurrected weeks later. He opened his jaw to say something to her. But it fell off his face and into the ocean as green, dirty water spilled out. She blinked and the image was gone. Just a cruel trick of her imagination. That night, she stared out at the sea until her eyes burned. She refused to blink or tilt her head in the slightest. She could not pass up the opportunity to see Walter if he decided to appear again. Her maid begged her to move away from the window and dress for bed. Julia wavered as the maid insisted that the wedding dress needed to be taken off. If she continued to wear it, the smell would seep into the fabric, and they would never be able to wash it out. But Walter had not seen her as a bride yet, and she needed him to look just once upon her before she could change. But there was no Walter waiting for her on the shore. There was no ship to bring him safely to her arms. He did not climb over the dunes toward her house. And Julia wept. Her great gasping sobs were so loud that they bounced off of the wooden door. They woke her maid. They woke her father. There was no one immune to the wailing of Miss Huggins. Eternally, Miss Huggins. The next morning, she finally gave in to her maid's pleas and changed into bedclothes. She crawled beneath her blanket and lost herself to sleep. In her dreams, she stood on a field between her brother and her betrothed. They fought and yelled, and she tried her best to intervene. She dove between them. But it wasn't enough. The gunshots woke her up. She could have sworn that it was happening in her room. Her maid rushed in to save her. It was only then that Julia realized she was screaming. The maid explained that there had been no shots fired. It was just her dreams again. She was safe. All was well. But Julia did not feel well. She could smell the cologne that Walter wore. A dash of lemon and cloves. Near the corner of her room was a cold spot. It had not existed before her beloved had passed away. Her father told her that she needed a hobby, so she took up cross-stitching. It was something a child could do, requiring no attention from her. She barely gave her hands any notice as she gazed out the window and searched for any sign of her betrothed. It wasn't until her maid placed Julia's dinner tray on the table that she looked down to see what had frightened the other woman. Julia had been sewing into her own skin, pulling pieces of the bright thread through her flesh. She watched the red X's as she flexed her fingers, hypnotized by the movement. No one believed her when she said she hadn't felt the needle. Her father brought in one doctor after another, but there was nothing wrong with her. Her reflexes were fine. Her skin felt the pressure of their touch, and she could feel the marks where the thread had been. The cross-stitch hoop was taken away, and Julia was left again to her own devices. The shapes outside her window began to blend together. And then he was there. There was a gaping hole in his chest. His face was a strange mix of gray and blue. He opened his mouth, but no words came out. A creaky groan left his lips. She rushed to embrace him, but he would not wrap his arms around her. Her tears soaked into his shirt. There was no wailing this time, just a gentle sort of relief that her faith had been rewarded. Refusing to eat, barely sleeping, it had all been worth it for her to look upon him again. She gazed into his eyes, expecting to see some warmth or affection. There was nothing of the sort. His breath smelled of decay, and even though she tried to get him to talk, he could not speak a word. His eyes didn't recognize her. His arms refused to touch her. This could not be her beloved. A shiver ran down her spine. She could not laugh now as Walter's body fell forward and crushed hers. She let out a shriek, but no one came in to check on her. Her mate had grown accustomed to Julia's noises at night. She shoved at the dead weight on top of her, struggling to breathe. He rolled off her slowly, his muscles stiff. She scrambled toward a corner of the room. He pulled himself up and lumbered closer to her. She could not figure out why. She remembered her maid, telling her the body can rise without the soul after three days. But it had been three torturous weeks. Perhaps he was a jumbie. An evil ghost cursed to harm the living. No... Not her Walter. Her kind, beautiful Walter, who had never done anything wrong in his life, aside from murdering her brother. As he stepped closer to her, Julia realized she made a terrible mistake. The corner didn't offer her safety. He was blocking any hope of an exit with his large body. She drew a breath. It stuck in her throat. Walter's arms were wrapped tight around her neck. His once warm hands, squeezed. She tried to pry his fingers off her, but he was much stronger. His eyes never met hers, staring blankly at the wall. She was nothing to him, no more consequential than a fly that he wanted gone. She tried to make some sort of noise, but there was nothing. No furniture within reach. She beat her fists against the stone walls, but no sound came from it. Her vision blurred. The fight started to leave her tired frame. Somewhere far away, she could hear something. She hoped that it was her maid, worried for her mistress and running in to check on her. She smiled and then felt the sickening crack of her neck. Her body went limp. Then, only then, did Walter show the tenderness he always had in life before that horrible day. He picked her up and placed her in her chair, facing the sea. Julia felt it tearing inside of herself. She didn't understand. The solid weight of her body was replaced by something else. She looked down. Her body sat in the chair, but she did not. She was not connected to it anymore. Walter was gone. Julia screamed, but her body sat still, looking off into the distance. No one would notice that she was really gone. It is said that Julia Huggins lived many years beyond 1822. She was always described as a peculiar recluse. Though she lived with her sister for the rest of her days, the two women would only cross paths once a week when she would visit Julia for Sunday tea, sitting beside the window facing the bay. Sometimes when she entered, it seemed like Julia was crying. But when her sister checked her face, her eyes were still, quiet, waiting. Edward Huggins was tried in English courts for the abuse of his slaves in 1817 in a seminal case that would help spur the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in 1833. The abolition would spur a slow but inevitable decline of the sugar trade in the Caribbean. The Huggins family boarded up the Eden Brown estate manor house completely after the tragic duel, leaving it to the ravages of the wind, rain, and ever-creeping vines. The expensive furniture disappeared to the surrounding cottages, but only infrequently and one piece at a time. They were nervous to cross the grounds and even more frightened to enter the stone house. Even the stunning view of the Atlantic on the ridge isn't enough to distract from the wailing of a woman they cannot see. We'll have more on what came of the Eden Brown Estate after this. Now, back to the story. As Julia Huggins languished, so eventually did the Eden Brown Estate... Sugar cultivation became less lucrative thanks to the emancipation of British slaves in the Caribbean colonies in 1833, and the growth of the sugar industry, in areas where the practice was still legal. Production limped along in the estate, but the last sugar plantation in Nevis closed in 1956. The jungle took what it was owed at an alarming rate, caressing and consuming the stonework at Eden Brown. Today, tourism has replaced sugar. Nevis is home to the Four Seasons only resort in the Caribbean. The Nevis Heritage Trail circles the whole of the island, running parallel to the sea on the northern half. It's the jumping off point for hotels, beaches, and restaurants. But one has to be careful to keep to the road. You'd never understood the idea of staying at a resort, so you headed into town just below your rented cottage for a bit of local color. A group of men sat playing dominoes and welcomed you to join them. They told you many secrets of the island, including a place called Eden, a plantation now consumed by the jungle. And later that night, as you sat by the lit pool below twee fairy lights watching your friends fail at charades for the umpteenth time, Eden was all you could think of. Your friends didn't hike, and during the day they'd want to go to the beach or windsurf or golf. Now was the only time you'd have an opportunity. The island was only nine miles long, and that was end to end. There was no way you'd get lost if you took a little stroll up the road to the plantation. You'd bring your camera, too, and see what the ruins looked like under the moon. Maybe see a ghost, if your Domino's partner was right. Your taxi driver had been good-natured when you told him where you were going. It was close, but you figured a local would be better at pointing you in the right direction than Google, who couldn't even manage a street view here. The taxi driver took you to the edge of the trail. The shadows of the outer buildings rose up under the bright moon. As you closed the car door, he leaned out, the usual Nevisian warmth replaced by a deadly seriousness. Now you do as I say, to the ruins and back. Look for Miss Julia, but stay on the road coming down. Do you understand? You weren't sure if you should tell him he was scaring you. But that would also involve admitting you were scared. So you nodded, thanked him, told him you'd walk back, and thrust far too much money into his hand. He told you he'd wait for your return and pulled out an airport novel. The small dome light of Rupert's car was swallowed up by darkness as you took the bend in the road. You turned on your headlamp and examined your surroundings. There were latrines here that were older than your country. Most of the sugar mill buildings were missing their roofs. Vegetation swallowed large pieces of stone, tearing down structures piece by piece as green tendrils punctured 18th century mortar. You thought the air would get clearer as you climb, but you realize you're moving through fog. To be expected, really. You're getting closer to the peak Columbus thought was covered with snow. You decide the shape you saw out of the corner of your eye was a deer. You crest the hill, and it takes your breath away. Glittering sea, and a dark shape breaking the horizon. The island of Antigua, far away. The wind rustles the leaves that cover what remains of the great house. You stagger back against the stone, searching for the source of that horrible cry of anguish. When you look up again, red eyes meet yours. A troop of vervet monkeys perch in the trees opposite the sea. 20 pairs of human-like eyes watching you, deciding what you are and if you belong here. You see a mother pull a small monkey to her chest, chirping softly to it. Fighting every instinct, you turn off your headlamp and sit down quietly. You don't like to be disturbed when you're sleeping, either. You watch the lights glinting off the small red orbs disappear as the monkeys blink themselves to sleep. The wind pulls at you again. But you realize it's in sync with the lapping of the tide far below. No ghost. It's been hours, hasn't it? You were so entranced by the monkeys and the moon that you lost track of time. And still no Lady Ghost screaming for her lost love. You snap a few shadow-heavy pictures of the ruins, get some excellent ones of the moon. Then you head down the hill, making sure to switch your headlamp on. The beam finds sandy gravel and fallen palm leaves. You try to walk quietly, not wanting to disturb your fellow creatures. But then, with a click and a snap, you see it. It. Her. She's beautiful, pale in a period wedding dress, short, puffed sleeves, ruffles and embroidery. And to top it all off, a wide-brimmed hat wrapped in shimmery, translucent bows that glow under the moonlight she stands on the edge of the road one foot on the gravel and the other in the undergrowth but it couldn't be her that screamed she was smiling or rather you can't see her face but you can tell by her posture by her general air that she's happy joyful even gazing past you into some beautiful tomorrow She inclines her head toward the dirty ground, lifts the hem of her dress to reveal a small, dust-covered foot. She shakes her head in disgust, drops the dress again, as if there's nothing for it. She's in her own world. You remember to use your camera. She turns and heads toward the trees, her gait unsteady, almost lopsided. You keep snapping, following like a hunter getting a bead on their prey. You almost trip on the leaves and place your hand out to grab a tree. It shakes the branches in a percussive wave as the first bits of morning dew land on your head. She's still again, her head still down. But it's somehow artificial now, forced. A voice deep inside you tells you to run. But then... She's running away from you, deeper into the woods. Her weight, uneven, unnerving. You decide you've got enough pictures. You turn to make a swift getaway for the taxi. But there's nothing there. No light, only trees. The quiet is deafening, but you dare not scream. You try to collect yourself. Something's coming. You have to run. And then she's in front of you, head down, posture broken. One cloven hoof sticking out of her pristine dress. It's the same ample form, but you can feel the hunger radiating off her. You wanted so badly to know what was beneath her hat, beneath the ruffles and the lace and the ribbons. But now, now you want to run. She raises her head. The last thing you see is a smile. La Blas, the demon woman, has figured in Caribbean folklore since the concept of demonology reached the islands. Though her archetype dates back far further than that. She's described as a beautiful woman who was transformed by a deal with the devil. He takes her soul and disfigures her but leaves her the means to hide her face and one cloven hoof. She's fated to pull people from the path, seducing them to their doom at the hands of the forest. The Eden Brown estate would have been a source of dark history without its inauspicious construction, famous duel, or tragic, not quite, widow. The truth is that all plantations have their own ghosts, their own screams of injustice and pain. We'll never quite know the true story of the Hugginses and the Maynards. The tale has been mired in local rivalries, whispered rumors, and tourist-friendly retellings. We have burial records for Julia Huggins, that lists her internment as June 24th, 1910, which would place her in her hundreds if she was a blushing bride in 1822. But she was a recluse, this we know. Her father reported her death. The walking ghost finally stopped walking. There's another version of the duel that involves a dispute over the employment of a blacksmith or that the challenge was issued after an argument over a beautiful biracial girl, which would be no surprise considering the gap between the two men's views on abolition. But the fact we do know is that there was a violent death, a death of a wealthy landowner from one of the island's most powerful families. There was something wrong about it to Nevis society. In a world where sugar burned and slaves were broken over and over again, a matter of honor gone wrong was too much to bear. If a ghost is a guilty memory, Eden Brown has them in droves. But that doesn't mean the monsters aren't real. When the Spanish, the English, and the French brought their slaves, they brought their traditions too. They took root. They grew beside the sugarcane and spread through the men and women that harvested it. So be careful how you treat the land and the sea. Be careful how you treat the people. Because while the people of Nevis are friendly and the Eden Brown estate is beautiful, its spirits are not so hospitable. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Wherever you listen. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lil Ritter and Jennifer Richey. I'm Greg Polson.